0: Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. That's E-N-S-C-A-P-E 3D.com. My name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. hello and welcome back to this part two of a special two-part series with Dina prestos who's the founder of indigo River in the New York City area she is a waterfront architect so last week we talked about the wildflower studio which is located in the New York area as well and we talked about indigo Rivers transdisciplinary approach to design of the waterfront then we we kind of started getting into some deeper topics, so we wanted to split that into a second episode or second part. So I think you're going to find this part very inspiring and interesting. So we talked about Dina's dreams for the architectural industry, and we also talked about diversification within the design industry or within design professionals. So things that we can do as design professionals that stretch beyond just standard construction documents. So Dina and Indigo River support and invest in offshore wind generation and training programs for professionals to utilize and run this type of power generation. So we got to get into that and kind of how we as design professionals have autonomy to have an even greater impact on our carbon footprint, carbon output that stretches actually beyond our designs and actually into that power generation. So It was very interesting. I would say very non-traditional, but eye-opening as to what the possibilities are for those of us in the design industry to use our expertise beyond just producing construction documents and designs for buildings and spaces. So I am going to turn it back over to the second half of this conversation with Dina, and I hope you enjoy. So let's get back into Indigo River a little bit. So sometimes, you know, we kind of talked about all the different ways that you're hired and brought into the project. Do you typically function as the architect of record or are you supplemental to the architect of record?
1: Depends on what the what the program, what the scope of the project is. We've done both. I would say more often than not, we are not the engineer architect of record, especially when we're teamed on large projects with the exception of for example, we've primed and we are awarded, we're midway through design on the piers for Governor's Island. There are two piers being redesigned, and rehabilitated on Governor's Island. And so that scope, that type of project, we will be engineer and architect of record, but on larger municipal works where it's a, you know, entire shoreline or entire entire public park or a port facility, we will take key components of the project, but not necessarily always be the production firm or the the firm of record. Other kind of typologies that we work on. Certainly, we work on port facilities and marinas and ferry terminals and bulkheads and seawalls. But we also have, particularly during the pandemic, we diversified our portfolio aside from just professional service offerings into also kind of buying into some of the goals set, you know, federally and, and within the state of New York with regard to renewable energy, in particular, the offshore wind. And so we invested heavily in a workforce development pipeline for the emerging sector of offshore wind for the workforce. So that has is a departure from you know traditional professional service firms, but that again is kind of speaking to our one our advantage of where we're situated in that design projects happen. You know on the earlier end of the spectrum, we're designing the you know, port facilities for offshore wind marshalling yards or whatnot. But in order for those to become real, they need a construction force to construct the port. And in order for offshore wind to become real, we need a construction force that will install the turbines offshore. And so that workforce currently does not exist because it's a new industry. It's a new market within New York. And so in order to meet some of the goals that have been set, we've invested in kind of the training and the pipeline and the mentorship programs to get companies and individuals kind of up to speed to be able to better meet some of these goals. And so we've not only focused on kind of the harder engineering and architecture, but also on the softer, the workforce development, the community engagement, the stakeholder engagement. And I would say kind of as a Another aside in terms of what we have going on or, you know, the people that we employ are not all of the same background by any means. We have many different disciplines of engineering from coastal and marine and structural and environmental and geotechnical. And it goes on. We have a P.E. diver. So we have many different disciplines of engineering Even among architects. We can come back to this, but whether or not, you know, specialization or generalization is, is recognized, but even... If you want to say traditional architects, we really only have one other traditional architect that was trained as a quote unquote building architect. But we have a landscape architect. We have two naval architects that focus on floating structures. And then we also have a series of planners that, you know, urban planning or waterfront planning or climate adaptation planning, climate adaptation specialists and scientists. And so we really do have kind of a wide array of specialty within the firm, again, like minded individuals focusing on the waterfront, but through different lenses. And we collaborate for the betterment of whatever the project goals are.
0: Yeah. And all coming at it with a diff, like you said, a diverse background, but also a diverse training. So all the different lenses overlap to create the best output for your clients, I would think. So just like your investment into sustainability, like not only from the design standpoint, but also from an implementation standpoint, I feel like you see like the offshore wind generation more prevalent, like in European countries, perhaps?
1: Yep. And we're, we're learning from, I mean, we didn't try and we stood up an offshore wind training school and it's a technical school and it needed accreditation, but we looked to leverage assets that others had already developed. For example, our, our curriculum and we, we franchised a program that was existing in Norway and adapted it to. Fit New York, but kind of leveraging what's already out there and advancing on it so that it's not recreating the wheel or starting from scratch.
0: Right, right. And then talk about from project inception to completion and utilization, right? Like taking it a whole nother step instead of just, you know, the start to the beginning of the design, just carrying it through implementation as
1: well. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a different dimension of thinking of it's not only yeah, the technical design, but it's also the design of the workforce that needs to build. It. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: well, and I think that speaks to you and to Indigo River as well, as far as your approach, like it's not traditional it's not what you would expect of like an architectural firm like you see the need and there is no reason why that can't be part of your or you know under your umbrella as well because it's a need and it fits together
1: yeah and that's something so I volunteer with NCARB, which is the National Council for Architecture Registration Boards, and I volunteer in several different capacities, licensing advisor, and I've sat on different committees like the Think Tank and Rethink Tank. But currently, and for a couple of years, I've been involved in the Futures Collaborative, which looks at future trends within architecture and the industry. And part of that takes kind of abstracting what we've kind of historically thought of the role of the architect to be and what it has been and how it's evolving and changing and what we anticipate it to be with some of the trends and, you know, digitization and climate change and space architecture, all of these other kind of facets that are developing rapidly and in tandem, kind of compounding on each other. And so understanding what the future role of the architect will be and understanding what licensure currently offers is that you're, you know, as an architect, at least you're licensed to... Protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public in the built environment. And one of the things I really enjoy is finding ways to assert that agency in different ways. And so I think, in many ways, launching a training school for offshore wind is a way of doing that. It's investing. It's it's protecting the health, safety, and the welfare of the built environment. Maybe not today's public, but the next generation or two generations down, that public needs these investments in the infrastructure and these investments in the workforce. And so that's certainly something that I enjoy and appreciate, you know, thinking about, talking about and doing is asserting agency and finding new ways to assert agency as a professional to do just that, to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public in the built environment.
0: Yeah, and just like you were talking about earlier about you know the different disciplines that work under Indigo River, I feel like you are also modeling that in what you're outputting, right? So like you're bringing that lens. So what you bring to offshore power generation is different than someone with a different background, and so I think that's so important and so fascinating to be bringing that skill set, who you are, the things that you hold true and important, and then outputting that into the world.
1: Thank you. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And okay. so can we back up just a little bit and just talk a little bit more specialization versus generalization in architecture? So like we talked earlier, you are a waterfront architect. This is I mean, you're kind of trailblazing this area, right? You are kind of one of the
1: first to be doing this, correct? Maybe the first it's branding myself as such. I think there have been specialties within architecture in the past. And there are currently certainly we look at whether or not it's certified or accredited or licensed we don't have those models set up yet but we look at how architects spend their time and invest in their communities and there are many healthcare architects that they have a very unique specialty that if you asked me to design a hospital i mean i'd be starting from scratch and and maybe i'd have fun with it but it wouldn't be an efficient use of my time it wouldn't be an efficient use of a client's money i mean unless it was a you know waterfront site and i was collaborating with another true healthcare architect but there are different areas which I think are worthy of our specialization and worthy of our focus. And if we look historically kind of at the role of the architect and the Renaissance architect and what different scopes of work fell under them, it was a lot more. And as we've evolved as society, we've kind of carved out, you know, engineering and you look at within engineering and you have specialties, you have environmental, you have electrical, you have mechanical, you have, you, know, you can go down the, the list of the different specialties that allow the professionals to go deeper within their tracks within architecture i would say you know the renaissance architect probably covered a lot of it was you know the master builder it covered the the engineering it covered the construction it covered the the tradesmen it covered the the landscape the urban design the design thinking all of that was considered under the purview of the architect and as we've evolved Many of those areas have been carved out. And I'm not saying landscape architecture is an architecture. It absolutely is. And it's worthy of having a specialization. But there are many other facets within architecture also that I believe are also worthy of having specialization. And still to have the role of the architect as the you know conductor of the symphony, but to be able to speak the different languages within different specialty areas. And so that's very much kind of what I've done within Waterfront is understanding the different disciplines involved and being able to communicate effectively and efficiently with them, but still to bring a design lens and not only the problem-solving lens of the engineer. And so many of our waterfront infrastructure typologies have been kind of as a result designed by engineers as a problem-solving task and not as a design task. And when when we have design tasks as an architect, we kind of Absorb, yeah, their health, safety, and welfare components, but the welfare component really becomes interesting in terms of design and in terms of impact on the community. Whereas the engineering is more kind of the technical problem solving, the the survivability, the safety of it, and there are you know different provisions and different processes that go through that as a discipline, but tying it back as an architect, I feel like is where I saw room for opportunity. The first eight years of my career, I worked you know, contracting design engineering. Most of my exposure was with engineers and I felt very kind of reactive to problem solving and not proactive as a designer. And so I saw that as an opportunity as an architect to assert my agency within this typology of waterfront.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that's so fascinating. And I think I see things changing in the industry as far as the autonomy that the architect and the engineer, the structural engineer in particular, are being given because with, you know, just the state of our (laughs) climate right now, right? Like we see so many things happening right now. It like, there's so many things that are in our face, like we have to deal with this now. And so much of the carbon output comes from the construction industry. And since that's our area of expertise, I feel like we are starting to take over some of that autonomy of having some control over essentially over welfare, right? Because welfare could be, you know, immediate impact, but it's also long-term impact of our society as a whole as well.
1: One of the challenges there, and I don't have an answer to this, but it's been posed to me, and I'll, I'll restate it here is, yeah, how far does that welfare component reach? And that's when you spec a material on a site and where, you know, steel is coming, well, where is it coming from? What labor was involved? Is it child labor? Is it slave labor? And many in this country don't want to answer that question, because it's not a good answer. And it's not things that we uphold and agree to within our values of, you know, democratic and society. And it's not something that is exposed as much as the reality is. And what I mean by that is most of our steel in this country does have some element of it that was involved or produced by slave labor or child labor. And that's who owns the welfare component of that piece of should should we be using more locally sourced materials? Then the cost goes up. It's not uh, feasible for the the developer. And there, there are other kind of items that are triggered by that discussion, which is kind of why it always gets hushed. But there are other welfare components that, yeah, as the engineers, as the architects, we have insight into, but we're not kind of given the full liberty to exercise what our agency is if we really are going to stand up to these values that we you know, claim to have as a society.
0: Yeah. So it's like an onion. I hate that analogy because I feel like it's used all the time, but it's like layer by layer. Right. And like until that gets completely flushed out where there's not layers that are hidden and like covered and protected so that nobody finds out, like until it can all get flushed out, then I guess there's not complete autonomy or agency until that happens, but a process, right? A slow,
1: (laughs) slow process. Slow process, but the first steps are awareness. And so I feel like that's why conversations like these are so important.
0: Yeah, I love it. I think that's so important too. So what do you think, as a design professional, what are some things that we can do in design to kind of mitigate or to help with climate adaptation and like tangible steps that we can take in our design to be better stewards of the
1: environment, I guess. Sure. So a couple of different, you know, actionable and tangible steps, whether architects or engineers that you can take to begin to address, you know, climate adaptation, certainly incorporating nature-based solutions like green roofs, bioswales, rain gardens, they can start to help mitigate the effects of climate change by absorbing stormwater runoff, reducing flooding, improving air quality, et cetera use of resilient materials, especially important on the waterfront. But when choosing materials for waterfront architecture, it's particularly important to consider materials' ability to withstand the effects of climate change like sea level rise and storm surge and extreme heat. And so materials like, you know, concrete, steel, masonry are generally more resilient than wood or other organic materials. I think one kind of mentality that we can continue to employ is that of designing for flexibility and adaptability. And so Designing to be flexible so that we can adapt and continue adapting to a changing climate condition is particularly important, and that can include features such as, you know, adjustable flood walls removable docks and raised waterways, giving examples from kind of my line of work, which is on the waterfront, but there are other ways to kind of translate these to building design as well. And maybe most important is considering the surrounding community, not only now, but in the future as well. And so considering the needs of the surrounding community that can be, you know, including access to green space or creating opportunities for recreation or protecting sensitive habitat. So there are a lot of different ways that we can begin to take actionable steps to address climate adaptation that's not not so reactive, but a little bit more proactive. And it shouldn't come as a, as a negative. It should be a, a positive in that there are ways that we can kind of get ahead of it and not be subject to a changing climate.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And lots of great ideas in there too. So what are some things that can be done for existing buildings to retrofit them to address flood mitigation and carbon
1: footprint reduction? So, I mean, the first part of reducing carbon footprint is, yeah, repurposing existing assets, existing buildings, and not demolishing and starting new. So as much as is possible to maintain and preserve parts of structures and to retrofit them in a thoughtful manner, which can be... Oftentimes by, you know, reprogramming spaces, if you know that you're subject to to flood inundation and having water in a space, you can, rather than putting, you know, something occupiable, you can put something that's, you know, allows it to get wet. Like I talked about with Wildflower before, it can be, you know, a car that can be moved to higher ground and the the parking area, the, the garage area is allowed to get flooded. And it can be, you know, with impervious materials that can be power washed after and let, once the water recedes and can be cleaned off and, and reused and without considerable damage and anything that is, you know, more sensitive to water elevate to a higher space and reprogram, you know, if there's, for example, we, we work on a library in Westchester that the children's area was below the flood zone and several times it was in, inundated. And so one of the master plan schemes that we came up with that is being used is to entirely relocate and elevate the children's area. And it's, you know, it's becoming an addition on the existing building, but the area that was subject to flood Flood inundation is being reprogrammed as a wet flood proof space and as a mixed use space so that it's not it doesn't have anything that's permanently programmed. It doesn't contain a lot of materials that can get wet or damaged. And so starting to think about repurposing our structures and if we're making upgrades, making upgrades that are resilient and that can be you know, in the water and standing water and not be damaged installing check valves and backflow preventers and they're, you know, elevating utilities are kind of a a pretty generic checklist that can be applied and, you know, takes different form on different sites. But just the thought of elevating utilities so that they're not, you know, repeatedly damaged, replacing and upgrading materials that can withstand the damage. And yeah, looking to reprogram space in a master plan in in a longer term timeline can be very effective, so that it's not a new building, you're, you're, you know, continuing to use a lot of the materials that are already there, you're not knocking it down, you're not bringing new materials to site, new embodied carbon, you're repurposing what is existing in a way that is thoughtful and can withstand, you know, future incidents and events.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think it's important to note that so many of these materials are able to be repurposed as long as they're selectively deconstructed. Steel, for instance, as long as it's not rusted, like as long as it's not starting to delaminate, it usually still has its structural strength and will for many years to come and it it does take a lot to melt it down and start over from scratch a lot of you know yes it's recyclable but just even doing that takes a lot of work and it's a lot less work to selectively deconstruct and then use it somewhere else I think it just seems like the big thing that has to be developed with that is just coming up with an inventory list and log and figuring out a system of how to catalog all of those items that are available when something is deconstructed.
1: Yeah, and one so one thing I'll I'll say that's kind of all for the static of how we as architects and engineers look at, you know, a plan or a site plan or a survey of of what's going on on the site, but I feel like a lot of time the strategy can be derived also through pointed and thoughtful conversations with ownership or with operations teams to understand what really is necessary? What are the goals of the team? How are they using it? How do they want to use it? Because sometimes there are, yeah, deployable temporary systems that'll check every box, but the owner or the operations team might not have the the manpower, the human intervention required to deploy it. So I feel like a lot of the time, the design strategy in terms of what solution is selected, aside from what's technically feasible, there's kind of a fact-finding with the ownership or with the operations team to understand what is practical at the end of the day as well, because what's technically feasible and what's practical are not always the same.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate to expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure, a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 U.S. jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more at ncarb.org. That's N C A R B.org. And as we're kind of talking through this whole like carbon footprint side of it, carbon emissions, I'm also just thinking about how you are proactively designing these spaces. And so there's two things that I'm thinking about with that. One is so many times when. You know, there is a little bit of predictability to, you know, like a river situation where, you know, water levels go up and down. So sometimes there is a little bit of, you know, forecasting to that, and people know that the water level is going to rise rapidly. And there's fear with that. Like there's a sense of fear of what's going to happen. What is it going to inundate? And when you're proactively designing for those kind of worst case scenarios, so to say, I feel like it eliminates some of that fear and then just like it's a very sustainable approach because there are so many things that we all have to do to save this planet that we're living on, right? And like we talked through so many of them as far as, you know, reusing materials, but when you can design thoughtfully at the beginning and design for these worst case scenarios, that is like the ultimate, right?
1: Yeah, and that's, you You touched on something, kind of the relationship between sustainability and resiliency, and we've used sustainability a lot kind of here in the discussion, but I do want to emphasize kind of the difference between and why they go hand in hand and why they, how they affect each other and they're kind of inexplicably linked. They both kind of get us closer to our goals of climate adaptation, but they are, they have an inverse relationship. And what I mean by that is we talk about sustainability to mean what our impact is on the environment, what our CO2 emissions are, what, what we're doing and how it's impacting the environment. And we can be so thoughtful and so careful and source our materials locally and repurpose and adapt and, and do everything and create a building or create a piece of infrastructure that is not resilient and that the next storm comes and it's damaged, and now, oh shoot, we have to rebuild it. Well, it wasn't sustainable at all if we have to do it all a second time. And so understanding not only the importance of sustainability in terms of our material selection and our thought process of how something is constructed, but also the importance of designing for resiliency, for for nature's impacts on the man-made, for on our built environment, what that looks like and how over time, the two feed each other and get us closer to our goal, but only when they're paired together. So they're the opposite sides of the same coin, so to speak, but they're both inextricably linked to our success in evolving and adapting to a changing climate.
0: Yeah. And I think that that happens. And like you explained that so well, that's so Fascinating. I think I was using sustainability for resiliency there. (laughs) So thanks for fixing that. But I think, you know, all of our different areas of specialty uses something different. So, you know, earthquake design, there's resiliency there. Yes. Like wind design. And now the code is starting to include tornado design. So like all of these things and flood mitigation, like what you're dealing with in a day in, day out basis, like everybody can bring their specialty expertise and apply it to a resilient design, I feel
1: like. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what do you think is the most fascinating thing about waterfront architecture?
1: So one of the things that attracts me most to waterfront architecture is that there is this environmental awareness, both of what we're doing to the environment, because we're meeting nature with something man-made. And so there's that connectivity but there's also nature's continued impact on man-made so we're again considering sustainability and resiliency but there is that environmental awareness that happens at the water's edge on a recurring basis if you're you know on a in an estuary environment you have a rising and a rising tide or you have it like I live on the Hudson I have a four foot swing of high tide and low tide because we are in a brackish zone and we get salt water coming in from the Atlantic and so understanding there's this constant motion that if I have a floating dock, We always show you know range of motion drawings to understand even with you know accessibility concerns of high tide low tide what does that look like what does it look like when there's a storm surge what does it look like when it's you know low low and the moon is out that we have different conditions that we're designing for that are very attuned to the environment and i feel like i could completely be subject to the the types of projects that i worked on that were not waterfront but i feel like i didn't have as much of an awareness on a traditional landlocked site And certainly, you know, nature is always around. We have the air, we have the birds, we have different things, but particularly on the waterfront and in the water, there's a whole nother habitat that has a connectivity beyond your site and has an impact beyond your site. And so understanding kind of, yeah, there are, you know, technical expertise and there are communication skills kind of throughout the industry as architecture, engineering, construction, but there's a particular vocabulary and there's a particular subset of skill that is required working on the waterfront and it is very nuanced and specialized. And so being able to kind of carve that out and focus on it and particularly, again, with the environmental awareness and being able to create habitats and habitats conducive to creating new life and things that have a different impact than we do or than I did on traditional landlocked sites upland. Yeah, that's so fascinating.
0: I think that's super fascinating. Like you said, it's changing all the time, right? So we all know that, you know, the water level is rising, the sea level is rising. How do you
1: deal with that with a new project? So we we start with a state survey to understand what the different water levels are, what, you know, low tide, high tide, kind of do a, an assessment to understand what the projected rates will be for the rise, what it look like in the year 2050 or the year 2070, we start to develop kind of a due diligence analysis of just the facts, you know, what's there, what was there, what are the, you know, the different water levels, what will they be, or what do we believe them to be? And then we start to come up with the design criteria and the goals for the project. And so that happens very early on. And certainly, you know, the rise of sea levels, sea levels are rising at an alarming rate. And that's having a significant impact on coastal communities at large. And there's only so much that can be done on one site at a time. Part of what we do is, you know, more on a planning scale and regional, which is also a wonderful way to have an impact. But when we're on a particular site on the waterfront, we'll set goals for the project of, you know, do you want to design a 30 year lifespan or do you want to design to a Hurricane Three event or to the year 2050 or the year 2070? Depends on what the program is and, and who the client is. And we'll do our best to educate and inform as to what the realities are, what we project them to be, and come up with those goals so that we can design to them. And sometimes we'll, you know, we'll advise di- designing to whether it's a year or an event. And sometimes the client doesn't buy into that. And sometimes they'll, you know, they only want the 30 year life or they want to flip the property and they just want to do what's required by code. So those are, you know, sensitive conversations to have. And we have them and we're in business to, you know, be in business. So we still have to consider, you know, what the client wants aside from what we think is best for the site, you know, in perpetuity. But those are early conversations that we have in terms of setting goals. And then that establishes our design criteria that we proceed in advanced design based off of.
0: OK, yeah, because it's important to note that those tighter stipulations mean more expense for the project. So a lot of times that's a deterrent, I think.
1: Yeah. And part of I mean, part of the challenge with that, even, even with existing assets and so when we get brought in, whether to retrofit or whatever it is, this is our service and this is what we provide and has to do with risk mitigation largely. I mean, other things that we do as well, but with regard to flood mitigation, we'll spec out different options and kind of a return on investment for, you know, category one, category three, category five, or, you know, what whatever the year is. And one of the things that we've found to be really difficult, and this is kind of beyond our industry or profession, but it's really hard for companies to justify because they can't, they can't profit on avoided losses, even insurance companies. And so that's a really hard sell to make sometimes if they're not in it for the long haul. And, and part of this maybe can speak to even kind of our philosophy around land ownership or property stewardship or however you phrase it or term it. And we look at, you know, historical or in other countries, kind of what that looks like. And when a family house is passed from generation to generation, what that maintenance and care looks like is very different than if you have a house for one generation and then you're going to flip it and sell it. And it's not maintained for your own. And it's kind of a different philosophy and different investment that goes into it. And So that's what I feel like we're seeing in much of this country is that kind of shorter life term and quicker flipping and lesser investment to the detriment of, you know, our built environment as a whole in this country. And so that's kind of a challenge that we see. But to answer your original question, we do figure out the goal based on kind of presenting the information to the client and then talking them through, you know, what's practical and and what makes sense. And also kind of on the other side of what is the minimum required by code.
0: Okay. Very fascinating. So I have another kind of off the wall question a little bit. Hopefully this isn't too scary, but I know you're a futurist. So I know that you bring this holistic approach that you are not nose to the grindstone, just in the day to day nuts and bolts of your job, that you're thinking about it from a long-term sustainability situation. And I just wonder what your dream is for the industry or what your dreams are for this industry.
1: All right. Well, that's a loaded question.
0: (laughs) That is very loaded and very out there. And I didn't let you prepare for this at all, but it just popped in. (laughs) No, I love
1: it. I love it. Let me take a stab at it. So certainly, so maybe I'll start with kind of, I, I touched on before kind of historically what the purview of an architect was, what our landscape was, what we were responsible for, and how that's kind of shrunk over time. And part of that is other professions and disciplines coming into existence and asserting themselves and kind of if, you know, we had a whole table, now we have a slice of the pie that's left. And so the the issue I think right now for architects and something that does deeply concern me is kind of our, not our relevance in the future. I, I think there's plenty of ways that we add value, but our ability to communicate that value increasingly becomes stressed and strenuous and is not, we don't kind of hold the profession at the status in society where it used to be. And That's of concern, because if we're being devalued, we're kind of being backed into what we can continue to hold on by regulation. So what. I mean, it's my nightmare. I mean, I'll talk about my dream, but my nightmare is that architects get kind of backed into the corner as expeditors; that they're only hired when a permit is needed. And that's completely aside from what the agency of an architect is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public in the built environment. And if we're just doing kind of the bare minimum to meet these codes, and I mean, I would say investing in codes and rewriting codes should be a big part of the architecture practice and getting involved in policy writing, legislation, also should be a big part of the architecture practice. It's not seen as that right now. You ask the average person what an architect does, and they'll say, you know, design a house or design a building. And or you ask an engineer, they might say, pick a color, pick a swatch. <laughs> Across the spectrum, it's it's not understood kind of what the architect does and what the value the architect brings to the table. And so my dream for the profession to kind of get out of its own way of this we're kind of spiraling and minimizing and losing market share in terms of what our impact is compared to what it has been. And part of that is that the business model is broken and that's, you know, a whole separate conversation, but one way to kind of write maybe course correct the financial model for the profession is to expand in what we do. And part of that is, yeah, me focusing on the waterfront, not a traditional area for an architect to focus on, but I'm one less architect kind of in the race to the bottom to outfit interior buildings or whatever it is. And so finding ways to, again, assert our agency in different ways, and that agency remains the same to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public in the built environment, but also re-examining what that means in terms of built environment, because our world today is very different than it was when, you know, you can say the architect role emerged and we have a whole digital world that is a built world. And so one of the areas I would think is worthwhile, whether it's an architect or whether it's, I think it's appropriate for an architect, but one of the areas I feel is worthwhile to assert our agency is in the digital environment and within the metaverse and within our interaction with technology. And we look at, again, health, safety, and welfare. Well, mental health is health. We look at the mental health crises going on around social media relationships. Kids, teenagers interacting with social media. What's going on with their mental health? It is a crisis. And we think about who designed these these things that were using the technology, the social media, the, the platforms, And was anyone considering what the architect would be considering, which is health, safety, and welfare of the public when these things were designed and when they were deployed? And no one was. And so we're kind of in this very experimental phase of we don't know what the ramifications and consequences will be, and we're experiencing them. And no one's been watching out kind of proactively to get ahead of what some of these consequences will be. And so I, I do feel that there is room and, Certainly, technology companies can afford to hire architects to look at these things. But meanwhile, kind of insult to injury, all of these technology professions, they have software architects, they have data architects. They're not architects in the way that we're trained as architects, but the opportunity is there. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue with, within you know traditional architecture and building. But I believe that there is room to expand and assert our agency in different ways. And not only in the physical environment, the built environment includes the digital environment. And so I do believe that there are ways to kind of reassert and reestablish as a profession and help. I mean, the the end goal is to protect the welfare of the public. And so that is something that I believe would be worthwhile, whether or not actionable immediately day one, it'll take a movement, but there's certainly a hope for the way that we interact with our digital environment to improve and for someone to be looking at what the welfare components are and what the consequences of not considering that will be.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I have never thought of that. And that is very expansive in my mind. So I enjoy, it's going to be fun to kind of process through that and noodle through that a little bit. But the two words that I hear coming out is more like expanded, but also specialized. So other opportunities for specialization within architecture but expanded scope, so taking more. And I think that's exactly what you model as a company as well, where you have many specializations with an expanded scope.
1: Yeah, and just by by contrast, can we even fathom where we would be as a society if doctors were just doctors and there were no specialties. There wasn't a neurosurgeon, there wasn't an ophthalmologist, there wasn't a cardiologist. Can you imagine if they were just all doctors, generalist practitioners? Can you imagine if engineering were all engineers, general practitioners without any specialties? It's a hindrance that we're not embracing some of these different areas to become more deeply specialized in to expand our impact in different ways rather than kind of, again, ruminating over the same scope and kind of fighting each other to get to the bottom. And we're undercutting each other's fees. And it's just it's kind of a sloppy mess kind of as we're spiraling down rather than taking a step back and saying, wow, I have this education that can apply in so many different ways. It can better the communities that I'm involved in. And it doesn't need to be in the same way that an architect before me did. It. And so, yeah, as a, just as a point of contrast, I think if we can just learn from the medical profession, the engineering, the law community, there are different specialties for a reason. And if we can begin to embrace that as a profession, I do believe it will better serve us and the public in the future.
0: Yeah, and it creates that expert title or that expert feeling or whatever, right? You're an expert in this specialization, then. Because I think both engineering, so structural engineering and architecture, we are stamping things saying that we have, you know, performed the due diligence to prepare these documents and all of the technical knowledge that's required for them and that we're practicing within our area of expertise. But I think a lot of times, like, Maybe you haven't done a certain type of project, so maybe you'll enlist a peer review or something. But sometimes that area of expertise, I think, can become more generalized. I don't know. I think we would all feel more fulfilled if we were the expert that we knew this is what we do all day, every day. This is where we focus on and not so much like
1: everywhere. (laughs) Right. It would probably allow for us to become much more entrepreneurial because we think of, and I mentioned the business model before, certainly in terms of the financial model, but also in terms of the liabilities and the standard of care. If we look at the standard of care, it's backwards looking. And so if I'm a progressive architect trying to do things differently, but I'm held to a standard that's based on precedent before me of of individuals who are not proactive or, or progressive in their thought process, it's not encouraging me to do anything different. It's encouraging me to repeat the same mistakes that have been made before me only because in a court of law, when I'm stood up against, you know, other architects or engineers before me, well, what would they have done? They'd have done the same thing that the people before them did. But now we're trying to break out of that model. And it's very hard, especially in the face of climate change and climate adaptation where we're trying new things, but it's almost like the liability on us is a penalty because we're not enabled to do those things. And so it's, I mean, a liability is a whole nother topic that we can talk about also in terms of, you mentioned before, designers, you know, 10% of the time and maybe, you know, 6% of the fee. Meanwhile, the contractor has 90% of the fee and 5% of liability. 95% of liability is coming back to the architecture and design team. And so you look at these things and they're just not sustainable in the long term as a profession for us to continue on. Right. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. And sometimes, you know, as
0: architects and engineers, we're a little more just reactive or a little a little more pacified.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or afraid or yeah. timid. And There's no incentive or encouragement to be entrepreneurial or to try new things. And you also I mean, we've we've seen it with working with, with municipalities that on the one hand, it does make sense for the philosophy to be somewhat provincial. If they haven't seen it before, they don't want to try it new with taxpayer dollars. It's not demonstrated to work. You can kind of understand that, but you also get rooted in this cycle of only what's been done before. And that's very hard in a moment in time where the ways in which we work with you know digital tools, the, the materials with which we're working are evolving so rapidly. There are so many changes that are afoot that we are embracing, but we're kind of held to this old, antiquated, archaic standard that doesn't, it's not conducive to embracing any of these new technologies or materials or codes. just the rate at which code gets revised is a detriment to the profession and in turn, the built environment and in turn, the public.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I have to commend you and other people that I have seen that are forward thinking and that are trying to do new things because I see you and some others, too, getting involved with that policymaking, getting involved with code writing, because I think you innately know that the only way that you're going to be able to have that freedom and that autonomy is to change the framework in which we're tied
1: to. Yes, absolutely, and thank you. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> okay, so if you could give, and I will let you pick on this, either the Wildflower Studio or Waterfront Architecture, but if you could give a theme song that encapsulates everything, what would that theme song be?
1: I think Empire State of Mind. Yes. By Z and Alicia Keys. I've, I mean, it's, it's about New York City, but it's also about this ambition and drive that... Two qualities essential for you know any successful whether it's film studio or company certainly kind of resonate with me.
0: <laughs> I love that. And I think that goes for you too, with just with the tenacity and just like that drive too. I think that's a great song. I love it. Gonna have to listen Thank to it you. after this. <laughs> what do you do to recharge when you are not in the empire state
1: of mind? <laughs> Uh, well, we touched on it before and just with my childhood in Alaska, I do as frequently as possible look to exercise and get outdoors and participate in outdoor activities. I feel like that just kind of resets me. I was also a, an athlete kind of throughout college and have been very active and fit my my whole life. And I do find that balancing kind of mental load and stimulation with physical is a nice way to reset and with rest as well. But particularly getting outside and engaging in you know regular exercise and outdoor activities can help clear my mind, reduce stress, whatever's going on. Other things that, you know, are always great to recharge if I'm, you know, stuck in a day of back-to-back meetings, just getting outside for a short walk can, can help kind of reset and clear. Or if, I mean, whether it's a weekend or a short getaway, especially if you're able to go to another country and see kind of a different culture. Again, that word empathy comes up, just understanding how other people live, what their built environment is, what their relationship with it is, all help. And, time with family and friends, just kind of getting outside of the, the grind of whatever the quote unquote nine to five is to get a new perspective.
0: Love it. That's great. I think those are all great things. Well, this has been amazing, Dina. I feel like you have set up a bunch of topics that are new to me, a bunch of new thought-provoking things. I think a lot of these are just like at the forefront right now. Like they're just being presented industry-wide. So I think this is fascinating and I can't wait to kind of see where it takes you, see where this mindset that you have takes you. And I can't wait to see kind of what transpires with these different topics that we talked about today too. So thank you so much for being on the show and this has been amazing. So thank you.
1: Thank you. It's been so much fun to talk with you and chat with you. And yeah, some of these are are newer themes, but always fun to discuss and always fun to get feedback also from the listeners as to what resonates or if you agree, if you don't agree. So thank you for having me. And I hope some of these... Some of these topics land and resonate with some of your listeners. Yes, me too. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows. Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today.